to another episode of Future Nation. You're telling me that you built a time machine out of a DeLorean? Where we speak with some of today's brightest innovators and explore the future of disruptive innovation. Let's go. Here's your host, Daniel Callow. Hello, and welcome to today's episode of Future Nation. I am your host, Daniel Callow. Today, I will be speaking with Tim Clover. Tim is a data analytics and problem-solving guru. As a former director of PwC, Tim has worked with some of the world's leading brands to help them better collect and interpret their organizational data by implementing cutting-edge data automation techniques. In 2013, Tim left PwC and set himself on a mission to democratize market research by creating a new and powerful market research platform that leverages data with both automation and machine learning. Today, Tim is the CEO of Glow, a platform that has successfully lowered the barriers of entry to market research and provides its users from startups to large corporates fast, accurate, and actionable insights into their brands like never before. I introduce to you, Tim Clover. Hello, Tim, and thank you very much for taking the time to be on Future Nation today. Thanks, Daniel. Good to be here. No worries. Tell us a bit about your backstory. As you can probably tell, a Brit originally been in Australia now for nine years. Yeah. Just uh, last week passed my citizenship test. Yeah. Came here with PwC in uh, 2010. Came out with my wife. Yep. Was going to be here for two years from the UK. Fell in love with the place. Got permanent residency and another Brit who hasn't left. So uh, <laughs> yeah, that's about me. Can you tell us a bit about your time at PwC? What role did you have there? So an interesting one. So I joined PwC in London as part of the business modeling team. Um, yeah, PwC obviously do a lot of financial modeling. They were trying to help a lot more organizations to understand their operational data. I sort of joined the team there in 2006 to help them model some of the internal processes that their clients had. A lot of the data was really hard for them to understand. Yeah, My team was then taking that information and helping execs understand it in a basic level. So less about the financial metrics that were coming out of it, but more about planning from an operational perspective within the business. And doing that there was great. But what we found was as that was sort of growing as a capability in the UK, there's a lot of opportunity for PwC outside of the UK. Yep. And Australia was hunting for talent to help them try and build that business here. So how did you go from working at PwC to being an entrepreneur and starting Glow? Things were flying at PwC. So I came out here as a manager in 2010 and got promoted a couple of times in three years to get up to sort of director level because it was a new capability in the market here. There was a lot of demand for it. We were working with a lot of West Farmers type clients, um, major banks, Department of Education, lots of different industries who were trying to get a really good understanding of their data. So I guess I was in the right place, right time to be building up PwC's business in that space. And was on the sort of the route to partnership. So PwC had said, we'd like you to become one of the future leaders of our business. Yeah, wow. And I'm at a bit of a crossroads because I was umming and ahhing the whole, you know, become a partner and um, that's it, you're sort of set versus take more of a risk. And I guess my my passion was to try and help, I guess, more organisations use data. I'd had the benefit and the privilege of working with major global brands throughout my career. Yeah. 
And I'd often seen that, you know, only certain brands could afford the PwC rate card. Yeah. Which was great, but I could see that there was also technology was meaning that there was sort of more use cases beyond the corporate for more data to be better used and I guess democratized through more businesses. So it took a choice to have a crack at something else. And I assume that was the birth of Glow. That's right. Yeah. So took my boss at PwC out for dinner and had a chat with him and said, I'm leaving. And he said, can I invest? Which was great. So it's good to get that kind of support from that network. But um, we managed to get a few people behind the business. I had some savings that I managed to persuade my wife was a good use of them was to put them into a startup business, set up a home office, went out and recruited our CTO. Yeah. Spent nine months building up a pipeline of investors and initial clients, managed to raise some money. Managed to get some really great and very patient investors behind us in the first case. And then after about seven months of sort of working hard at building out our initial platform, picked up our first client, which was Target. Nice. Yeah. So they were trying to understand some issues around some of their customer returns. Yeah. And we were brought in to try and help them capture data that they otherwise weren't capturing that would help them understand what was driving returns so they could improve the products and the service they were providing to customers. It's a very sort of customer-centric organization that we were trying to help. Fantastic. So I assume you pretty quickly outgrew your home office? Yeah, that's right. So we had the home office for nine months, then we picked up a sub-tenancy over in Collingwood near Melbourne and worked there for about seven months and built the team up and picked up a few more clients, including one of the Coles brands. And from there, outgrew that space and got our own sub-lease out in Abbotsford, which is where we're at now. Tell us a bit more about the type of clients you're working with and how they're using your platform. We've been working with great corporates to fund the build of the platform, really. And we've been doing that with automation that's built into the platform is what they wanted. I think a lot of the corporates, and we're talking about the likes of Coles and Target and George Western Foods and Schweppes and a lot of the sort of major international brands as well. Yeah, wow. But a lot of those guys are trying to innovate in a more agile way. Yeah. They're trying to get better data earlier in the process so that when they innovate new products and services, they hit the mark so that they fail fast and fail early. So for a lot of those guys, I guess those projects have helped us cement the use cases that we want to support in the platform. But we wanted to make the platform accessible to any business in the market. So I had this sort of vision that was, could we build a platform that someone could access for a dollar a day? and make it so that any business could start to feel confident to go and do their own research. Yeah. And that was where, you know, working with the big brands, we could establish the use cases and make it an enterprise-grade platform. Yeah. But with a vision to release it into the market so that any marketing manager or innovation manager could access it and use it. So in working with the big end of town, we've been able to then create that sort of democratized access to more businesses. Yeah. So we've got a fantastic portfolio. We've got ASX 200 businesses. We've also got a number of small businesses, often husband and wife manufacturers who are just about to try and pitch their first product into Coles. Yeah. We'll spend an hour on the phone with them just trying to help them understand how they can do that in a more effective way using data. And all the time we're going through that process, we're making notes about how we can automate that experience so that more brands can come on and that we don't have the resource constraints that we would otherwise have if we went to try and scale into market. Can you explain in more detail how Glow is challenging the more traditional methods of market research? So we've automated more of the process. Research is a complicated process. Yeah. You've got lots of points of failure in research. You've got to design a decent survey effectively. You've got to target an appropriate audience. You've got to make sure the data you get back is quality. Yeah. You've got to then be able to turn the data into information. So you've got to do the analysis. That means that you can make sense of what people are saying. 
And you've then got to be able to present that across different parts of your business and different stakeholders outside your business in an effective way. And because traditionally that process has been a multi-capability, heavy-handed, highly skilled set of processes, it has required you to engage the likes of a large agency to support that process. Like a market research agency? Yes, you'd hire a big market research brand who can then come and deliver this for you. What technology is enabled is for you to do a lot more of that yourself. Yeah, We find that you know, the challenges we're going to face over the next few years are going to be about uh, making sure that we put the right guardrails in place so that people don't mess up and make mistakes. Yeah, Because if you give someone um, sort of great power in a platform, you need to make sure that they understand how to use it so they don't damage their own brands. But for us, it was about simplifying that process and making um, that capability more easily and I guess in a more agile way available to more businesses. Yeah, so dropping those barriers to entry. Tell us a bit more about the cost benefits an organisation would realise by leveraging an automated platform for their market research. It depends. It's it's also, of course, so the cost of launching a product that you then take to someone to get it onto the shelf of a Coles or a Woolworths, for example, if you're a manufacturer, you might spend anywhere between 80 and 300 grand getting that product into market. Now, the research part, all the research feeder into that new product development process happens at different gates. If you're a large organization, you do that, you know, you test your concept. Yeah. You might run some focus groups. You might then test whether or not the packaging is fit for purpose, check different variants of the packaging before it launches. And you could be up for anything from 20 to 150 grand's worth of research that goes into just purely the, the sort of market readiness. Through automation, we've made it so that you can get a sample of, say, 500 people responding to a survey for possibly you know, one or 2,000 bucks. Wow. If you need then help with that, we've got agency partners who can use the platform and deliver similar outcomes for you as you used to get before, but for less outlay. So we've tried to really transform that cost of research. So platforms such as this essentially drop those barriers to entry. How high are the current barriers for research? Are organisations simply not engaging in research due to the barriers? The barriers to doing research in the past, and I guess if I just frame up the market research space, there's probably about 15% of brands that should be doing research that are actually doing it. And a lot of the market over the last 10 or 15 years, they've removed that capability for doing research because it was seen as a sort of nice to have within the organization. And often it's a capability that's not inexpensive to run. So as a function, a research function is quite an expensive part of the business to maintain. So it needs to be delivering value. For a lot of small businesses, they'd struggled in the past to prove the return on investment of doing research. And I guess in the advent of a technological age where you can have this sort of automation through the process, and you can deliver the same quality of insight in you know, days or a few weeks rather than 14, 18 weeks. Yeah. It suddenly opens up, I guess, the use cases to smaller businesses, but also to bigger businesses who are looking for better efficiencies and more capability, I suppose, to be able to run smaller projects in a more agile way. Yeah, I totally agree. I think being agile in product development has never been so necessary. Can you tell us about a specific use case where agile research was used to improve the outcome of a product? What we've seen is, and great example with one of our clients who's just done some repackaging of their premium tuna product, they tested a number of different variants of packaging and found one that was going to be a winner. Yeah. And then managed to sort of fight the supermarkets to say, well, this new product actually belongs with our other branded products, not somewhere else in the supermarket, because there's a bit of a sort of back and forth about where it should be. And all those aspects of launching a product are really important. If you think about the brand health or brand awareness funnel, You need to produce a product that someone who picks it up understands and would buy eventually. 
I guess they need to become aware of it. So if you're in the wrong place in the supermarket, that has a huge impact. It needs to be hitting a need. So it needs to have beneficial features and attributes that stand out. And you need the right hierarchy of messaging, for example, on the packaging. All those sorts of things make a big difference. And for a human where we've got a really complex thought process, there are lots of different ways you can use research to avoid common mistakes. And what we're seeing, for example, with this client is that they've launched the new packaging side by side with the old packaging. All right. They're double indexing their sales against that. They're extremely happy and want to do more of it. Yeah. And what's really interesting is that we've been able to help them build their own capability so they can do it themselves next time. Yeah. So it was less about us being able to deliver the project and come back and say, we want to build a big pipeline of projects. We wanted to be able to say, well, having done the project, you understand the benefit of doing this. You've got a platform that makes it so easy for you to do it yourself. that You can go and do it yourself. If you happen to be lucky enough to be an organization that has the resources to go and pay for a major research outfit to go and do research for you to deliver that end report that you need, you can still do that, but it's going to cost you less and you'll be able to do it a lot quicker. Are you finding that brands are engaging in market research when it's too late? Can you tell us some of the benefits of using research early in the product lifecycle? We get two sorts of phone calls. We get <laughs> we get phone calls and inquiries from people who are early in lifecycle trying to design quality into their products. Yeah. More of my background, I came from an engineering background. A big part of my engineering degree was about total quality management. It's about designing quality and so you have less problems downstream. And I think Glow, I suppose, is a personification of that in software form. It's trying to help you with the tools to be able to go and design quality into your products early. And then you have less failures later. I mean, every product's going to have a life cycle and you know, most categories will have, especially in this day and age, there's so much change going on in all sorts of categories across products and services whether it's because of disruption through the changes in channels through you know things like Amazon or whether it's through changes in people's lifestyles because of the education around health. So yeah. you look at massive explosion in kombucha market. We've got a client called Organic and Raw who make Mojo Kombucha who were recently purchased by Coca-Cola. You know, you're seeing a lot of the big companies who want to innovate rather than trying to innovate themselves. They're buying up the smaller companies who are doing it really well. So if you've got a brand that's trying to innovate and do it well, if it can do some research early in the pipe, then you're finding that it's fading less later. The other phone call we get is the second one, which is less easy, but it's often where people are willing to throw cash at it. And we have to often say, can't help. But that's where you've got a product that is struggling. You're looking down the barrel of deletion. Yeah. So if your brand isn't cutting it anymore because of changes in category, even if it's been a you know, family favorite through time, because of the changes in consumer behaviors, you're just finding that a lot of products then are being deleted by the supermarkets. And that's not because the brand doesn't work often. And sometimes it's because there's a new product entrant that's just taking that share, or maybe it's because people are leaving the category and going elsewhere. Yeah. But again, if you don't have the data to navigate that as someone in the C-suite trying to work out where to deploy capital, it's very, very hard to do that in an effective way if you don't have the right information. And people will call us and say, look, we need the silver bullet. We need a way of protecting our product from being deleted. Yeah. And sometimes that's possible, but often it's a case of, you know, if we do our homework earlier, we can avoid those sorts of knee-jerk reactions where we're trying to sort of put a Band-Aid on to a problem that's possibly gone too far already. Yeah. Tell me a bit more about how your platform disrupts the traditional agency model and what you think the future of research will look like. It's an interesting market. I mentioned the various stages in the process that we've been trying to automate. 
if I look at the traditional agency, you know, I'd spend a lot of hours of people's time tending to processes that can otherwise be, to some extent, automated. You can't automate the whole thing at this point. At some point in the future, you probably will be able to. Yeah. But as it stands now, what we've tried to do is remove some of that sort of waste by automating the decisions that you need to make through the process. Yeah. And for the traditional agencies, that means, I guess, less of that human utilization will be available to them. Yeah. The counter to that is that, well, yes, that means disruption means that the bigger agencies are going to be having less head hours on projects and then sort of directing them to lower value activities. What it means is that it doesn't change the value of the outcome for the client. So the smart ones, what, what we're seeing at the moment, we're seeing it with a few of our agency users, is they're starting to attribute much more of that project to the insights. So it's much more about trying to turn that data into information and tie different information sources together. Yeah. So the disruption is probably around the value added aspect of any professional services from a professional services perspective. If you then look down to the technology, because you know we've got these professional services that deliver the insight on top of the data, but looking at capturing the data where I guess we fit in versus the rest of the market is trying to make that cost effective. It's been historically... Um, pretty expensive to get into market research. You, you know, you need to spend quite a lot of money on licenses to do that. And I suppose to our dollar a day philosophy, we're trying to make it so that you don't have those barriers to go and try and start to navigate your way through the data. So I think the disruption there is going to be about sort of moving to a almost a zero cost model to a point where you back yourself with the quality of the data that's coming through and you allow people access to that. And then you start to align the sort of cost of platform to discounts on responses and things like that. Yeah, We've got seven or 800,000 Australians that you can tap into through the platform. Automating access to that's been a real challenge for a lot of platforms over the last sort of four or five years. And I think what we've been doing to allow you to directly access the opinions of those hundreds of thousands of people is in itself disrupting the market as it stands because that hasn't been available before. Yeah. And then when it comes to the next layer is, I guess, the ownership and management of those seven or 800,000 people here. They belong to a broader population of about 30 million people around the world who can be tapped into for opinion. And that ecosystem in itself, that's a three or four billion dollar market at the moment. Wow. But it's only been used by about 15% of the biggest organizations. Where we see the disruption there is being able to open up that 30 million person community to much more businesses. And a 2% growth in that new population of users, I suppose, is, is worth about $70 million a year from a market growth perspective. Yeah. And if you think of that as a complete white space, so untapped. You know, our goal is not to necessarily try and compete with technologies that are already doing a great job of making data available. It's really to open up new market. And because research has been so scarcely used, I think all the technologies out there are marching people in the right direction. I think for me, the change that we're probably about to see in the future is much more around automation, probably a lot more AI coming into things like, uh, you know, doing the analysis and looking at verbatim responses and trying to make sense of it. And yeah, that for me is where I see a big part of the future and things like video responses to surveys and yeah. being able to sort of take video and then read mood from video and what people are saying and their emotional response into insights on the back of it. That for me is probably what the next sort of two to five onto 10 year horizon looks like for the industry. I know some organizations are using eye tracking to test the effectiveness of advertising. Will we see similar technologies being used in retail, for example, effectively measuring the moods and responses of consumers in real time? Yeah, there's a lot of data out there that you can use, which is empirical data that's captured from sales happening at the supermarket. For example, that's available, but the why behind it is quite difficult. And I suppose the closer you can get to reading the moods and responses of people, 
whether it's a shelf that's got gaps on it and the product you want's not there or there's a new product there and seeing if people look at it. Yeah. Responses to billboards and other advertising. I think we're seeing, especially with that, you know, things like eye tracking and other technologies like that, we're seeing changes in the right direction in terms of being able to read the human. Yeah. What you get from traditional survey platforms is you get the tools that allow you to ideally sort of remove some of the bias of the person writing the survey. And also carefully capture people's consideration of what's put in front of them, I guess, whether it's an image or a video or a soundbite around what the product's going to do or be. Going forward, that's going to evolve, I think. I think in the future, you're going to start to see that sort of 360 feedback happening in real time where someone's looking at a video and you're tracking their eyes. Yeah. And you're capturing that on a heat map and presenting it back to the business almost instantaneously Yeah, to help them understand whether or not different statements or aspects of the design are attracting the eyeballs of that consumer. Yeah. That's probably part of where the future will head. There's lots of different technologies that could come together to enable that. You mentioned AI before. We here at Future Nation love AI. Tell us a bit more about where you believe AI will fit in here. I would assume blended data would be necessary to achieve more holistic and accurate outcomes. It's interesting. So I read your uh, LinkedIn article on AI and, and what does it mean for the future of the jobs market? Yeah. I guess go back 100 years and 90% of the jobs that are here today didn't exist. And it was things like the semi-automation of creating things like motor cars that led to a whole set of different industries popping up. What we've seen since, I guess, to answer your question, what we've seen since the advent of things like Facebook, and if I look at Facebook and I look at other social media, I combine that with things like credit checks and the amount of information that the banks understand about us just through our spending. And because all of us have got a profile with the banks and most of us do that thing where you just say yes to the T's and C's. Yeah. And I guess what that means is a great deal of information is captured about us from a profile perspective. There's two sorts of uses of that. One's for direct advertising. So you've got you know, cookies that mean that when you next turn up on Facebook, the ads you see are about the things you're interested in and the way you live your life. Yeah. And the other way that it's used to start to build really deep profiles on types of people. So that segmentation, which can be attitudinal, it can be, um, it can be based on your behaviors. So behavioral attitudinal segmentation is being captured at a really, really granular level of detail by a lot of different organizations out there. I think from an AI perspective, when you play that forward and say, looking at the responses of different segments to certain media that we put in front of them and being able to categorically, I guess, tell whether or not someone's likely to purchase something based on their response, regardless of what they say or what they type. That's probably where the future is going to go from a research perspective, I would have thought. Yeah. You know, we know that someone is going to react or someone's going to behave in a certain way because of their response at this point. Yeah. And then it's a case of saying, well, if I can see the great human reaction to this product, and then I think about other aspects around that product versus other products on shelf. And if I can piece all this together right, then I understand exactly how to target those people on Facebook to get them aware of my product so they go and buy it. Yeah. I think the AI part is really linking together those sort of super profiles that are being built as we speak back to the human response and being able to then interpret and use that to drive better sales outcomes and also less waste. Yeah. If you look at climate change and you look at the fact that 70% of products fail within 12 months of being launched, that yeah. creates a huge amount of waste and waste being products in landfill and waste being people's time wasted on projects that end up not working. So I think we have a responsibility as a race to become more efficient in the way that we develop products. And I think this is one way that you can start to get that. And what role will humans play in a world where market research is driven by AI? AI is coming. There's no two ways about it. And I think the human role will always evolve as part of that. I think what we see through that cycle of evolution of AI is you start to see the human playing a different role every time it steps up. 
So you get these kind of plateaus of the human interaction with the technology. And then as the technology starts to take over what used to be the human's role, yeah. the human steps up and then starts thinking about the next layer of complexity on top of it. And then that enables the automation to catch up. The time between those sort of tiers of evolution is reducing. Yeah. I don't know where, you, know, you tell me, I don't know when, when it's going to automate and how much it's going to automate the entire stack from a research perspective. But there is no reason why in our lifetimes you wouldn't be able to just load or consider a series of concepts, have a machine come up with designs that it goes and tests with other machines designed to simulate human response to then come back and tell you which one's going to win. Yeah. To then go and automatically manufacture and get distributed to distribution centers into people's homes within days. You're already seeing massive transformation in reduction of barriers to people being able to produce new products. For example, teas. You can go and come up with a new tea at home. You can have a Shopify account set up to go and sell it. You can go and get the tea sent to your house. It's not a big product. You can package it and send it out through any number of couriers and you've suddenly disrupted a massive category in the supermarket. But if you then overlay that with the AI aspect and you end up with a very, very different future. Within the field of market research, what are the current challenges you are seeing in relation to the adoption of these new disruptive technologies? Glow as a brand was designed to be something that was consumer friendly. It's one thing being able to sort of explain to a business how to use technology to go and do research. It's another thing to use research to understand gaps in consumer knowledge around key topics. And I can explain that through the example being recycling. For you to actively change the way people behave around recycling, whether it's in terms of green waste or whether it's in terms of recycling plastics and bottles and all sorts of aspects of their usage of consumables, you need to really understand where the gaps are and understand where people have issues to be able to then create communications and messaging that targets those people who don't understand or who don't currently behave in a certain way to change the way that they behave. So there's almost a feedback loop that needs to happen at the consumer level, which is around understanding current perceptions to be able to then target them appropriately. And that's the classic use of something like brand tracking. It's what's your perception of my brand and what are the sorts of things from a competitive set that will change the way you behave in my category? Yeah. The same thing occurs at a societal level for market research. From a technology perspective, though, so the users, the people that are turning up and using our platform, the biggest barrier is probably around confidence. We have senior people who've been doing research for a long time who, when confronted with a tool, a platform that will allow them to automate capturing responses from a thousand people in the market, get to the point where they press the button and they say, can someone just take a look and check it's ready? So what we're finding is we're having to evolve our service structure to support that, to say, look, yeah. we're about trying to give you those guardrails and um, make you feel confident to press go. Yeah. And then once you get the data back, put more guardrails in place to help you understand what sort of sample size you're looking at and those sorts of things. So for us, it's about that, I guess, the confidence part, which tells people you can do this. You don't need to be a PhD. And you know, the amount you invest in the research should be proportional to the amount of risk around the decisions you're making. If you're about to invest you know, millions of dollars into production of a product, you should probably spend a bit of money trying to make sure that it's ready to go. If you just want to check out you know, potential business card designs for slight change in artwork, you might just go and put that out to a couple of hundred people and find out what they think. Yeah. And that's a much lower risk proposition, in which case we can help you feel confident to go and press the button and ask that question. But I guess reducing that barrier to entry from a cost perspective means it's one less thing for them to worry about. No longer are you trying to get confidence around a 20 grand research decision. You're trying to feel confident that the hundreds of dollars you're about to spend is going to get you the outcome. In relation to skilled staff... Does it therefore reduce the need for specialised high-salaried staff, such as statisticians, or will they still be required in most cases? 
So there's two parts to the answer to that. I think firstly, most people in marketing roles who've come through, whether it's a marketing degree or some form of education around the marketing process, will have done some aspect of research, which means they can brief in a research company usually. It means they can actually explain this is the background of the brand and this is what we're trying to achieve and can you help me do that? So yes, if you've got your internal statisticians or you've got your research team or your insight, often it'll sit in an insights team and they'll have you know, a number of different capabilities within that team. You don't need to, I guess what we're saying is you don't need the PhD to be able to go and create the survey when you've got arm's length support to be able to go and check whether or not a survey is good to go. Yeah, And that gives people confidence to then run the survey. When it comes to interpreting it, that's another skill set. So if you want to then interpret the data, the tools are built into the platform to allow you to do that. You don't need to take it offline and do more with it. So from an 80-20 perspective, for those light touch, short, quick turnaround projects, I mean, you've got all the tools that you need to be able to do it. Yeah. Again, to the point around getting information from that data, if it's a decision that's about millions of dollars worth of sales, then the chances are you will want to export that data and run some statistical analysis on it, Yeah, which does require a higher degree of capability in terms of insights. But you should be able to make that call based on the magnitude of the decision you're trying to support. It should be a case of working out what's the risk around this decision if I get it wrong. Yeah, And for the stakeholder making that decision, how do I protect the interests of the company, but also myself, so I don't end up making a poor decision when for a few thousand dollars I could have got the answer. I could at least have confidence that we're making the right decision at this point. And I guess what we're seeing is that as the market starts to understand that these tools are available for them to use, and Glow is one of many, there's loads of great survey platforms out there, I think what we're trying to show is that there almost isn't a reason not to do it now. Yeah. All the excuses that used to be there around it takes too long and it costs too much and I don't have the capability, we're sort of helping that go away, which means that as a board for any of these companies, you've got suddenly great confidence that there's data behind the decisions that are being made by execs in the company. Can you explain in more detail how using these modern methods of research where the data is available for everyone within the supply chain provides a better brand outcome over more traditional research practices? I guess the evolution of understanding within the business, we'd often direct our users or clients to go and start by treating it like a bit of an archaeological dig. So think about it as, you know, we're going to try and skim the room and dig about an inch deep and look for artifacts. And then as we see these artifacts under the top layer of uh, soil, we then start to dig deeper into areas where we get surprises, which challenge our hypotheses and challenge the way we think. And I guess great research done well without bias will allow you to take that inch off the whole room and understand whether it's the category or the brand. Yeah. Or even just the way that consumers are behaving from a change in use of channels and you know, Amazon versus traditional bricks and mortar shopping and all those sorts of things. But once you start to uncover those artifacts, you can dig deeper. And that's the time when having spent a bit of money to understand where the artifacts are, you can then direct further resources to dig deeper. And what a lot of brands used to do was spend you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars every couple of years to dig a sort of three foot trench across the whole room. Yeah. And then within that, they'd find artifacts. And that's a really sort of sledgehammer to crack a nut type approach. Whereas now you've got that agility. You know, I talk about, um, makes some people smile and others wince. But, you know, if I look at things like the way that Coles and Woolworths have been building out fantastic data sets over the last sort of 10 or 15 years, which are, I guess, pertinent to the way that they run their businesses and help their category managers define and set the strategy for their categories. But they've been doing it using traditional methods. And I guess that's really fantastic, but they don't make that data easy for brands to go and access for themselves. Because if you're a brand selling through, for example, a supermarket, you don't have access to the end consumer because you're sold through one of these major channels. In a way, we're producing drones and selling them on eBay. 
compared with the old way of arms, which was you'd buy Kalashnikovs for 20 years and you'd have this great stash of Kalashnikovs and tanks. And that's just not the way war is done anymore. We, you know, the, the, the battle is being fought through new technologies that are much more agile, that are much more easy to use, that are available with a credit card. And transparent. That are transparent. Like you can share that data with anyone you want to. That information can be in their inbox in the click of a mouse, and um, suddenly you're not arguing about whether it's a seven or an eight. You're, you're sat there looking at data and saying, you know, the story that we're telling about our brand works through our sales teams and it works through our marketing teams, and our execs understand it, and our retail customers get it, and they recognise that we're trying to drive a real agenda which is based on the consumer. Yeah. So it's really starting to push the decision making from outside the three people sat in the boardroom going, I think this, I think that's definitely going to fly to saying, what do a thousand people think? Yeah. And can we then just put that thread of the truth transparently through all our processes and start really looking outside our organizations? Ultimately, I think that's what makes companies such as Amazon so fantastic. Having data transparency means that everyone has an opportunity to build value from that data. That's right. And I think if you've got information and you have a basic understanding of how to use it, then you've got an advantage. Yeah. I guess that's where the world has moved a lot in the last five to 10 years. There's a lot more information just provided to you readily through the platforms that you use, whether it's Amazon or whether it's Facebook or whether it's LinkedIn or whatever platform you're looking at, you can start to sort of get insights and start to get data that tells you what's working and what's not working. Yeah. Where we found some of the barriers to running research have been long-standing and hard to break down, whether it's confidence or whether it's automated automated technology. I guess what we've been trying to do is then say to the market, you can now log in, you can get hold of that information for yourselves. We give you tools that make it easy for you to interpret it. And if you need a hand, give us a buzz. So what's been the success rate for someone using your platform for market research outcomes? We're yet to see someone use the platform and then continue on the same course of thinking. So we have a 100% success rate when it comes to enabling people to challenge what they came in thinking. And I think um, you know that hypothesis-driven, you know, we believe this product's ready, is it or is it not? And we believe that this hierarchy of needs is right, is it or is it not? Yeah. That ability to be able to go and test that and then come back and challenge and say, it's not about what the three of us in the room think, it's about what our market thinks and our target market is saying. They don't understand this, but they do think this is important. And this is the way they shop and this is how much they spend when they shop. And this is, a, you know, this is their loyalty across different retailers. And these are the channels that are interesting to us. Yeah. So being able to sort of start to think of the holistic view across that consumer thought process we're just seeing that consistently change the way that people are thinking about launching products. Even with the big brands, you're not in a position anymore to just launch and fail, launch and fail, because the retailers are getting very smart around how they range and their use of things like private label yeah, and are starting to transform the way that they range products in stores. So it's harder and harder for you to have a brand that misses the mark so often. Yeah, And because of the proliferation of insights, because platforms like Glow are available what you see is a transformation in the ability to use insights to drive the agenda and drive that discussion with the retailer. So lots of examples, lots of case studies from Coles themselves to small manufacturers who end up getting bought by Coke to major global players looking for new ways of doing things. Yeah, All of them leading to different decisions being made compared with the ones that they plan to make in the first instance. Yeah, that's some great outcomes. Tim. You have built a successful and innovative company, and in a short time, you have managed to deploy your technology among some of the largest brands around. Tell me, how do you drive innovation within your team at Glow? 
Yeah, it's a good question. How do we do it? I think with any startup, there's a huge amount of perspiration. You know, there's a lot of sweat and tears to get to the point where you've got a brand and a platform that people understand. And if I look back five years ago when we started the business and I thought ahead and I thought, well, in two years, we probably will have something that is market ready and can scale. And the reality was that we needed to go through further iterations of platform development with those use cases with major clients that helped us sort of stay on path and stay on track to where we are now. And the challenge to any team trying to do that over that period of time is really that one of drive. So what we've been very lucky with is having a consistent core team who've been around for a long time, but who've believed in I guess what the business is here to do, um, who have the drive and energy to back up the vision with, uh, when it comes to sort of nuts and bolts, doing the work and building the platform and being ambassadors for the brand. I don't think there's anything that could come above that drive, that effort, like putting the effort in and you definitely get out what you put in. We found out two weeks ago, we've got a major US investor who's coming in to help us scale globally, which is fantastic. To get to that point, you go through you know many cycles of trying to make sure you've got enough money to keep going, of trying to persuade your wife that things are going to be okay, and of, of, of realizing that you could be earning a lot more doing something else. And I guess there has to be some fundamental drive to do the right thing and to get to the right outcome for the market. And if you don't have that core purpose, then don't bother. Yeah, because it's the core purpose that drives you and keeps everyone involved and keeps everyone from your shareholders and investors to you know your interns who are working on the project to help them feel they're part of something that's important. What about you personally? What do you do to keep a sharp and focused vision? One of the things I do a fair bit of is walking. So we recently got a dog and, and I used to walk before we got the dog, but picked up a classic Aussie blue healer from the rescue, who's a lovely handful five-year-old boy who's uh, somewhat behaved, but it needs a lot of walking. And I find that when, when I'm out walking, I get to clear my mind and think. And before that, I used to go for long walks with my wife and we used to talk, but we'd also just sort of walk and think through where we were with life. And just having that chance to unwind, and it can be through walking or it can be through any kind of exercise or just the ability to sort of switch off and thinking about the drivers for what you're doing and just thinking outside your usual box of the day-to-day grind I found really helpful. I listen to a lot of music. Yep. I find listening to music does the same thing, the same effect, which is that it allows me to switch off. And often just the fact that I can switch off for half an hour and then when I switch back on, I'm I'm starting from almost like a reboot is an incredible way to change the way that I'm thinking about a particular problem. Yep. So yeah, I find whether it's the exercise distraction or the or some kind of music or other entertainment, that, that works for me. And what about inspiration? Is there anything in particular that inspires you? Yeah, inspiration-wise, I've got a lot of different people and brands, I think, that inspire me. I, mean, I look at people like Elon Musk, and you yeah. go, well, how does he do what he does? And Joe Rogan's got a fantastic podcast where he interviews lots of different celebrities, and Elon Musk's one. I think it's two or three hours worth of interview, which is just nonstop, which is, <laughs> if you've got a couple of hours, listen to it, because it's interesting to hear about a guy who runs a business like Tesla, uh, who, who then has the boring company and uh, creates rocket launches just because... You know, so I find hearing those stories quite inspirational. I find that a lot of the inspiration actually comes from the businesses that we work with. So just being able to talk to people and do that education piece and help them understand the capability, that in itself. I love solving problems. I, I came from Peter as an insights consultant. I have that, you know, like a stick of rock. You snap me in half, you see problem solver run right, right through it. So I'm in no better space than being faced with a problem that needs to get solved. So meeting the market and meeting our customers and, and, and understanding what problems they're trying to solve, I find it's a passion that I just love doing. I do it all day and all night if I could. 
you know, I have a direct line through to our product team, which means that I get to impact and drive some of the features that are important to those clients. So I find it inspirational talking to people who are very technically minded and trying to help them bridge the gap between what's technically possible and what the market wants and being able to sort of play that role. Um, so a few things that inspire me, um, people I find inspirational. Yeah, thank you for sharing that with us. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Thank you, Tim, for taking the time to be our featured guest today on Future Nation. We do appreciate you sharing your experience and insights with us. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Thanks, Daniel. We are always looking for innovative and interesting people to be on our show. If you or someone you know would like to share their experience and be a featured guest on Future Nation, head on over to futurenation.co and click on Apply to Be a Guest. If you like this episode, please subscribe to receive future episodes as they are released. Once again, thank you for listening to Future Nation. Thank you for listening to Future Nation. Hey, no problem, buddy. Head on over to futurenation.co. What for? For show notes and more. Oh, and don't forget to share and subscribe.